Howdy folks, and today I'm here with Jamie Joyce. She is the founder of the Nonprofit Society Library and oversees related projects such as the Great American Debate and Internet Government. She works on crafting decision-making models, building databases that contain arguments, claims, and evidence from every point of view and has experience writing legislation. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here, Ryan. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you. I've been so excited about this conversation and have watched a lot of your um, YouTube interviews and have written a lot of questions down and have thought about these things a lot. So super excited to, to get into this. So to right. begin, maybe just give like a, you know, your three minute elevator pitch of what the, um, so what, what, what some of these projects are about, like the uh, Society Library. Sure. So the Society Library itself is an educational library, but we're also a collective intelligence nonprofit organization. And what we're focused on, what our mission is oriented towards is really improving the relationship between humanity and information. Information, whether it's our internal instinctual thoughts and feelings type information or externalized data that we use to inform our political decisions or social maneuvers, um, that information is really impactful. And when it comes to political issues, those are really powerful levers of change in which few people making decisions actually impacts a lot of other people. Um, so we're really focused on how can we improve that relationship? Um, how can we use information to make more informed, inclusive, and unbiased decisions? And so the main program of the Society Library is to actually create a library that centralizes really pertinent information so that we can make informed choices about social and political issues. And what this actually means Means is that we're extracting arguments, claims, and evidence from various forms of media, over 12 types, and we're creating databases which logically articulate the reasoning from all points of view on complex social and political issues. So to make that like concrete, uh, we've been working on the topic of climate change in the United States, and in the United States so far we found there's about 276 subtopics of debate that Americans engage in in the English-speaking language, and there's about 396,000 unique positions that Americans take. So even though a lot of us bump into information about climate change and we may feel like we have an informed opinion, to really engage with the full breadth of content in the inquiry after truth requires immense amount of research. And it's really beyond the capacity, in my opinion, for an individual to really do that. And so collective intelligence organizations like ourselves really help deduplicate a lot of the noise and perform a lot of that research so that people can have access to clean curated collections of knowledge. That was an extremely clean and crisp elevator pitch. I can tell this is not your first, uh, your first rodeo. <laughs> Fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so I clipped this segment from the Society Library website and it says, while a traditional library contains books, films, music, and archives of various kinds, the Society Library extracts the arguments, claims, and evidence from those forms of media to combine them into comprehensive, browsable databases of society's ideas, ideologies, and worldviews. And since this podcast is called the Meta Ideological Podcast, I'm wondering if you can expand on what your definition of ideology is and how that's different from a worldview. Oh, that's such a great question. Um, that mission statement has been around for a really long time. And I think we chose words, um, even though I'm sure in an academic sense, they're very specific and they're not top of mind. I will be honest about that. But at the time we chose words that were really kind of like vague and encompassing. 
Um, and so when it comes to ideologies, for us ideologies, and I'd be you know, more than happy to receive correction on this if the definition is not correct. But for us, ideologies are a little bit more topic specific. They rest within a specific domain when worldview tends to be a specific orientation or potentially even a bias towards interpreting the world in a specific way. So making vast generalizations about people, about society, about economies, when an ideology may be something a little bit more specific to a specific circumstance. That's great. Yeah, that is that comports with my understanding. Right. Um, so let's dive into some some difficult topics right off the bat. So sure. I'm curious about how your organization tries to make sense of ideologies when there's so much polarization, disagreement about what the ideology really is about, especially some of the more abstract or arcane academic forms of ideology, Marxism, critical race theory, etc where I go, let's say I go to the Heritage Foundation website and read their summary of critical race theory, they're, they're going to say a particular thing. Uh, proponents of CRT are going to say something completely different. So I'm curious about how do you make sense of ideologies that, are, that tend to be very abstract, so there's a lot of room for interpretation and biases of interpretation. Wonderful question. So this is actually like a part of our specialty and what has really informed our methodology. So one of the things that we recognize is that um, language itself are kind of like zip files for meaning. And even though people are labeling a lot of these folders with the same name, they contain different meanings. And so when the society library approaches a subject, one of the first things that we do is we inquire into, is there actually a consensus definition for these terms? Or much like you mentioned with um, critical race theory, are there different interpretations of this particular term and are people articulating different meanings when they're using it? And that's something that can be evident when we're deconstructing media. So the Heritage Foundation, for example, would be a, a site that we would deconstruct. Uh, same with um, you know, the scholarly literature on this subject. And what we essentially find is that in when we're constructing our databases, there are some definitions in which there is consensus. Um, and there's some definitions in which there's not. Essentially, the definition is a claim and there's many claims as to what it means. So for example, going back to the climate change example, we found there's about 19 different definitions of climate change, depending on who you're talking to. A lot of people are using that word climate change, but they may have different implications of that meaning. Some people are implying that it's going to be catastrophic and imminent and unstoppable and horrific. Some people are kind of referring to matter of fact climate change, like climate change happens, it's always been happening, we may be accelerating it, we'll see what happens. So like, there's just different um, meaning that's implied when people use the word. So in our databases, for example, when uh, someone would go and look at our climate change topic, the very first question they would come across is, what is climate change? And they would have 19 different answers. And what they get to see is, okay, well, what arguments and evidence and claims support that a specific definition is the most accurate or correct one? And so it's similar for critical race theory, even though like, honestly, with, with critical race theory, that is abstract. Let me get back more, more so to your question. Like um, climate change is a phenomenon that's being observed. Critical race theory is an abstract idea. Um, so I'm glad I, I found that thread because I think that was your true question. Um, and so what's interesting about that is that some of the arguments that we map are also philosophical in nature. So like we could actually get into the argument of like, well, who has the right to name things anyway? Um, perhaps the original intention of that first set of authors uh, is how critical race theory should be taken as a word to like encapsulate meaning. Um, and in some instances, there's going to be, you know, people who would claim that that's a sort of linguistic fallacy that language changes its meaning over time. And we just have to accept that because that's been a constant throughout all of recorded human history. So we would essentially model that as well. And it's possible that 
um, you know, we would just have to have little indicators next to multiple interpretations of what that means. And here's the thing also is when you are modeling what a definition means, um, you're creating a more precise articulation of meaning. And in some instances, when it comes to uh, other debates that need to use that meaning because it's relevant, they will have to use that like sentence definition as opposed to the term critical race theory, given that there's so much argumentation over who has the right to name it, who has the right to interpret meaning, um, not only in a linguistic sense and like a philosophical sense, but also practically. Right, right. It's it's a very it's a very complex and, and tricky issue, you know. And I think one thing I'm interested sure. in, about is um, I, I I was reading on the website that you have a transcription process, mm -hmm. right, where you're we're in the process of stripping down or consolidating or deconstructing some of these ideologies or frameworks or ideas into more succinct kind of bullets for people to to understand. Um, I'm wondering if there's any process in which you verify with people of different sides, different parties, if you've accurately captured that or, or and if they disagree with that and what you do if they do disagree with that. Yeah, so actually, uh, one of the um, one of our principles is that like it doesn't really matter who says it, it matters that we capture what is being said. Um, so to answer your question, yes. And we do this a lot actually with um, individuals who are citing the academic works of uh, researchers. So we'll contact the researchers and say, this argument has uh, used your research as evidence to support it like itself. Do you agree that this is like an appropriate application of your conclusion in your paper? And they'll fill out a form and they'll say like, yes, no, they'll provide additional details. So we'll have like a record of like, um, you know, is the intention of the original author, uh, you know, being recognized and being applied correctly in later more abstract public argumentation. Um, but when it comes to making sure that people have representation, one of our strategies is just to have an immense amount of coverage and redundancy in pulling together information. So for example, let's say we're deconstructing something on television. Um, in our databases, like I mentioned, it doesn't really matter who's saying it. It matters, do we have the full collection of what is being said? So someone may say something about critical race theory and we may deconstruct it and we may deconstruct it incorrectly, but our goal is just to make sure that we have that correct interpretation from somewhere. So that's why we deconstruct books and textbooks and television snippets. We're moving into radio, podcasts, websites, because essentially by just having this mass amount of coverage, we're just making sure that we have in our database the full um, you know, representation and coverage of the available ideas on a specific subject. Um, so while we definitely attempt to get things correct, and as we evolve as an organization, we're going to have all these processes of redundancy. So essentially the same piece of media will be interpreted by many, many analysts. So hopefully someone's going to catch an error and there'll be a way of detecting through intercode reliability, are people essentially making the same interpretation of that same text snippet or not? And then errors in judgment and potential indicators of bias will become more evident statistically. So as we go on, things are gonna be much more rigorous, much more redundant, much more scientific. But for now, it's just, okay, we just wanna make sure we have the full breadth of ideas. Awesome. So my next question relates to what I think of as like the worldview or ideological translation problem, right? We're in different worlds, we're speaking different languages, right? Yeah. There are jargons that people who are not in our mimetic tribe or group have no idea what the heck we're talking about. Right. And so if I was a conservative who maybe got a lot of my um, information about CRT from let's say Fox News and other conservative outlets, I may have a very biased or slanted perception of what CRT is. And I am grateful to have found the society library and all these kind of succinct arguments. 
I might read the your breakdown of CRT, which may be completely accurate, but I still may not have the background, the experience, the intellectual infrastructure to actually understand that or interpret the accurate information accurately, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how you think of that issue too. Oh my gosh, so we think very deeply about this issue actually. So um, in our current knowledge management software, it's called Debate Map, um, and we're adding new features all the time. We're absolutely obsessed with what we call optimizing for comprehension. So like you mentioned, there could be many things that are in the way of someone going through this data in our database and not being able to get it. They don't have the intellectual infrastructure or subject matter you know, knowledge background, or they can't emotionally connect. They have too many prejudices and biases in the way. And so what we do in our database is for every single node, which is what we input claims into, we can actually input various versions of that claim into one package. So for example, if someone does have the intellectual infrastructure and they wanna opt in to a technical version of that claim that includes jargon and in-group speak and that sort of thing, they can do that. It's just a, like literally a click of an arrow. It's like they're opting into the in-group speak, whether that's scientific or cultural. Um, however, the standard version is everything's like articulated and, and um, explicit about meaning. Um, and then in, when it comes to uh, like not emotionally engaging with the content, not having the background experience, not being able to empathize, it's another thing that we're really focused on. So in every single node package, not only do we have variant text-based phrases, we have audio versions of it, but we also have imagery and video that can be attached. In later versions, we're going to have indicators which will signal to people that they need to watch like the video that's associated with this node in order to start engaging emotionally with the content. Because there's a certain degree of comprehension which requires understanding the emotions of what is being expressed. So like, for example, when we're talking about critical race theory, unless someone's really engaged with content that will make them feel the injustice of certain things or feel the horror and oppression of certain things, they're not really getting it. It's not the same. You can't just read a statistic and really understand because in some instances, understanding requires feeling. It's about understanding the feelings that are associated with that position. And so we're going to be associating media items with those nodes. And we already have the capability to do this, but we're going to be investigating more how to do this more and more effectively to essentially indicate for you to truly understand this position, you need to watch this or you need to consume this so that you get the feeling of it. Um, so those are some of the ideas that we have now. A lot of this functionality is already implemented, which is great. But yeah, we're absolutely obsessed with what we call optimizing for comprehension. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, I really appreciate that a lot because you know my job, my training is as a mediator and a facilitator. And so one of the things I do when parties are in conflict is I try to take what someone's saying, right? Their kind of toxic output as mm. input into my mediator um, software, right? My, my kind of way of thinking. And then I spit out a more integrative and more neutral output that yep. both parties can understand, right? So the initial person who made the claim or the attack feels acknowledged and heard by me that I've accurately captured what they're saying. But the other person that may be highly triggered or inflamed by what they said can understand my reframe or rearticulation of what they originally said. And yep. so th there are a lot of issues where I, I, you know, this is obviously very hard to do this at scale, but one thing I've been experimenting with is translating to people different ideas that are unique to one political camp through the metaphors, values, and ideas that the other people are already familiar with. It's you know, like an education, it's like schema activation. 
right? So I use a lot of metaphors with complex systems, right? So if I'm talking about climate change and, and cl climate complexity to libertarian conservatives, I use complex, you know, market systems as complex systems as an analogy, right? Or likewise, if I'm talking to progressives about, um, you know, free market type of policies or ideas, or with conservatives, I try to emphasize more like social and cultural complexity, right? So maybe we should be careful when we're tinkering with really big cultural changes that have been going on that have that disrupt you know, hundreds of years of, of cultural selection, right? So I, I think a lot about how to, how to do this. And it sounds like you have a really rigorous way of, of and I really appreciate too, um, the, the very holistic conception of human being and what goes into our sense-making, right? Our emotions, our personal experiences, our values, the allergies that we have to something and, and, our, and how that informs our biases, right? The motivated reasoning, the confirmation bias, all of these things. So yeah, I, I, I love your answer there. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate what you do because it's it's what we're attempting to do at scale. And of course, in my wildest dreams, there's all sorts of things that we could imagine as to how we can do that. But we're just taking it one step at a time for now. And in our, it's it's. I love that you mentioned metaphor too, because in our analysis process, when our analysts are breaking down language, they will uh, highlight there's a little checkbox for metaphor because it's like, oh, that could be really useful for explaining something. And then something else that we have on our note structure is um, people can opt into a humorous version of something. And we have rules around humor. It can't be like sarcasm to denigrate another side, but it could be like overly simplified language um, in order to make something seem absurdly funny. Because I, we feel like humor is another like Trojan horse to comprehension. Like we don't need to be so technical and precise about things. Like just opt into like the funny version of what's being expressed. And maybe that will make a point land a little bit better. There's a reason why late night shows are so popular, right? I mean, <laughs> really <laughs> right. inform people's um, political sense making that way. So my other question has to do with the problem of selection bias and availability bias. So I teach dialogue workshops to the public, and one of the diagrams that I show them is a is a, like a, a circle, a, a big circle that represents everything that happens in the real world, right? All the infinite combinatorially explosive uh, events of reality that no human institution or brain can, can capture or comprehend. And what the media, our media outlets choose to report on, or what think tanks or academic institutions choose to research, right, and all of the funding motives and incentives that go into that selection process, highly skew what aspect of the infinite whole we're, we're going to be even cognizant about, right? So I'm curious about how we think, how you address the issue of selection bias, where we may have accurate data, but we're reporting on the wrong things. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is such a great question. Um, yeah. So people who like are concerned, for example, about like network propaganda, moving the Overton window. Um, yeah. The, the framing and agenda setting can really bias um, you know, where we focus our attention and, and where we engage in dialogue. So the Society Library actually has a few rules about what we cover, what we find to be important. Um, and there's this trickles down through so many different stages of our analysis. So first I'll start with topic setting. So how we choose topics. We choose high impact, persistent and polarizing issues. One of the reasons why we, why we focused on climate change is because according to survey data, this is, gonna, this is one of the most persistently polarizing issues in the United States, for example. Arguably it's high impact, whatever you know, end of the spectrum you're on, there's a, a certain part of the spectrum that does not think it's going to be high impact at all, but that's okay. Um, and so that, that's, that essentially like topics have to kind of fall within that setting. Are they high impact? Are they persistent? Are they polarized? And due to resource constraints, we're focused on the English speaking United States. Um, now, once we've chosen a topic, how, like what, how are we choosing to organize the information? What information are we researching? What questions are we asking? All of that can bias 
what we're talking about. So we've got actually 22 different methods throughout seven stages of analysis to overcome our own selection bias and other biases in this regard. So one of the things that we're also committed to, of course, I hope this has been evident already, but we're just absolutely obsessed with representing every single point of view. And it doesn't really matter how niche or unpopular, um, we wanna represent every single point of view, really allow every single like perspective to be steel man. Now that means there is a lot of illogical content because um, some people, I don't know if they're not paying attention when they type or what, but some people will just spit out a bunch of really difficult to decipher nonsense. Um, and we have strategies to try and see if we can associate what's being expressed with something that is a little bit more logically valid. So we're always trying to incrementally improve representation and robustness of the representation of a point of view by steel manning something. We may not always get it right, but what we're essentially assessing um, is that like probably what's happened when people are typing things like global warming isn't happening because of Venus. Like it's a pretty, like we have no idea what that means. It's a very logical statement, but by just using the keywords global warming, not happening in Venus, we can see, okay, are there other more robust claims that are talking about these entities together in a way that makes more sense? So um, one, one of the ways, you know, that's one of the ways that we try and represent points of view and be radically inclusive, even though like if we actually included every little thing, it would be an overwhelming amount of content. No one would ever be able to go through it. So that's one, one thing that we do. Um, when it comes to selecting uh, different points of view and how do we find those points of view, uh, we start our process with something we call flyover. So it's like essentially just ascertaining what are the most prevalent topics that are immediately evident. And we have this whole pipeline where these topics are fed to analysts. Analysts have to go create representative sample sets across different media types. They pass it along to analysts who deconstruct all of this content. They find additional topics. When we find positions, we immediately invert positions to their opposite. It's called devil's advocacy. We borrowed this from the CIA. So essentially every time we find something like climate change is uh, you know, real, we'll, we'll invert that to its opposite. Climate change is not real. And then our analysts will go find, or our archivists will go find information to support that. And so it's just this constant process of finding positions, inverting them to their opposites, finding information to support those opposites, finding more positions. And that just allows us to unpack the whole space and have, have as much coverage as possible. Um, and then when it comes to you know, uh, applying the correct amount of time and equal time, to investigating certain points of view. Some points of view are simply not as dense in terms of um, content that's been created to support it. So we pretty much just pursue all of these logical ends as exhaustively as possible until we like can't find a lot of new information. So, um, and yeah, there's like, you know, 19 other <laughs> strategies to prevent us from corrupting the process in terms of how people work together and, you know, different strategies for neutralizing language and that sort of thing. Fantastic. It's, it's, it's amazing to me how rigorous and, and well thought out this process that you've developed is. Yeah. Um, so the other half of the selection bias problem, and I, I recently wrote about this in one of my articles on depolarization, what I found to be problematic with the depolarization movements as it applies, as it applies to every group, right, is a kind of self-selection bias where the people who really need it will not voluntarily show up to the event. So as your project scales, right, how do you think about, and maybe this is the wrong question, the wrong strategy, right, but how do you think about inspiring people who have no, who normally would have no interest in this to actually care about how they make sense of the world and, you know, spend time on your website? Yeah, great question, Ryan. And I also just want to add something really important um, to the, your last uh, question, which is um, there's a selection bias in terms of content that people produce. 
Um, there are a lot of people who are not writing books, not tweeting, not posting on Facebook, not writing medium articles. So how do we get their ideas? And so we've partnered with an organization that does uh, like focus groups essentially, and that creates audio data. So they create like safe spaces where they elicit responses from people who may not feel confident articulating it on the internet. And then we take that audio data and we deconstruct the audio data. So that's another thing is like, we have to also bridge the digital, the digital divide. Um, you know, we're working on creating committees for different populations and groups of people to figure out like what's the best way of making sure that these different communities are represented through the content that they're, they're creating. So just wanted to add that important point. Now, when it comes to engagement, one of the things, Ryan, I'll be really honest about, which I'm sure funders don't like to hear, is that the Society Library is actually a very long-term project. Um, even though we have to work on projects that are relevant now because you, we have to survive as an organization, our actual goal is to create the knowledge structures that future generations are going to grow up with. I grew up with Wikipedia. I love Wikipedia. I'm a Wikipedia editor. I'm a donor. I have a bunch of their swag, but it's not sufficient for, for many subjects. It is a very good primate, like, like primer resource for several subjects, but for a lot of them, especially the polarizing ones, it's simply not rigorous enough. So for the society library, it's like, what, what are going to be the new digital public institutions and infrastructure that generations from now are gonna grow up with? And I hope it's the society library because the society library will show them the complexity of things, how there are so many issues are multifaceted, how you really have to dig down to the datum to be able to see the merit of certain arguments. Because otherwise, what we're essentially doing is using a bunch of assumptions and heuristics in our sense making. Um, and so that's what I'm really aiming for is like, we need to build the institution of the future. However, that's not good enough for funders. We have to be doing stuff now. Um, so some of our plans, uh, it's very um, topic focused. So for example, climate change. Um, I already mentioned climate change is a really complex subject. There's varying points of view. There's a group called uh, Yale Climate Change Communications I believe is their name. Um, they also work with George Mason University. They've identified that there's about six different orientations that Americans have towards climate change. So there's the ones who deny it and the ones who are alarmed about it, some that are cautious, that sort of thing. And so when it comes to creating the library output, the goal would be, okay, we probably have to hire a marketing firm. That marketing firm probably has to speak to the you know, interests and curiosity of people in these specific groups. And depending upon the links that people click, the information may be rearranged in a way, such as like to immediately validate what there is to validate about that specific orientation's point of view to kind of welcome them into the rest of the collection. So this, this is a whole big question about like design and the stickiness of the design and marketing and that sort of thing. And so that's kind of like the nuts and bolts of how we plan on getting engagement. It's beyond our expertise, but um, something I wanna quickly add that's really important to us is that the Society Library is not in the business of convincing anyone of anything. We're not interested in persuading people to change their minds, so to speak. We're only interested in changing the context in which people think. So yes, we're interested in depolarization. We're interested in inoculating against disinformation and we're interested in increasing subject matter knowledge. But what we're really interested in is increasing intellectual humility, increasing empathy and starting to bring our culture into an awareness of complexity and we, how we have to reckon with that in order to make informed collective decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the things I've started doing partly due to my frustration with these depolarization movements that I was a part of was I'm just going to go to communities I'm not going to normally go to and just start talking to people on right. their own terms and in their own cultural cul-de-sac, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to expect them to change their mind or expect them to join okay. my club. I'm just going to go to your club as, you know, just as a vulnerable outsider and just have a conversation and, and um, have a little 
exchange of minds, exchange of worldviews that way, right? That's so, fantastic. That's great. I've been calling it memetic infiltration. Uh, my friend Layman Pascal renamed it to meta diplomacy, which I prefer right now. Uh, so I'm, I'm, my hope is to, to have a little movement of meta diplomats who just go to different communities uh, that we normally wouldn't find ourselves in and just yeah. make friends and build connections. So that sounds like a completely healthy strategy. <laughs> um, if, if uh, you know, just a quick thought experiment, if everyone in society did that, I'd imagine we would have a lot of positive outcomes. Um, that's incredible. And, and I will say the individual version of the thing I'm talking about with the society library about how we would arrange the collection such that the first thing that people interact with may be something that makes them feel like they're heard. Um, something I do on an individual level when I'm interacting with someone who's like very emotionally charged, they desperately want to convince everyone around them that they're correct, is I will usually go and like find a piece of pretty hard evidence and give it to them as like an intellectual gift. So for example, there was someone I went to high school with and they were just trashing me on Facebook and I didn't understand why they had a specific perception of me. And um, they were going on and on about Planned Parenthood being like this eugenicist organization and racist and all this stuff. And I was like, well, that's really interesting, you know, and I imagine at first a lot of people would be like, that's ridiculous. But I went into some archives and I found some letters that were written by the founder and lo and behold, um, she had some plans for eugenicist programs um, using the Planned Parenthood model. So I was like, well, here's some evidence to support what you're saying as opposed to memes. So that improves your credibility. And then from there, like the relationship completely transformed because he felt that he was heard, he was understood, he was respected. And from there I could share, you know, contrary points of view on everything he said and it completely changed the dynamic. He was no longer insultive or, you know, trying to, you know, slander me on my Facebook wall. That's awesome. I, I wrote about that technique. I call it affirm and expand or steel man and add. Ah, so you start by steel manning them first or affirming them first, and then you can, that opens up the space to add more to the conversation, build nuance That's on great. top of that. Right. Yeah. I love it. And I think that the, I love the attitude of trying to steel man everything. You know, there's a book called the listing society. I think the steel man society, right. Where my first impulse when I'm exposed to any new argument or perspective is to try to steel man it first and then try to, um, from, from there, right, I can kind of, then I can think about criticizing it. But I, I try not to criticize anything unless I steel man it and then have people from that side approve my steel man of it. Yes. Right. Yeah, I think like a good thought experiment is just like whenever you're interacting with someone who's presenting information, you can just think of them as an ambassador from a point of view. And it's reasonable to expect that this ambassador from a point of view that you're dealing with doesn't have a perfect memory. They're not a database. They can't summon all of the evidence and details of what they've seen to inform that perspective. They're not rhetoricians. They're not politicians. They're not communication experts. So like cut them a break. They've probably seen something that has some grain of truth somewhere, but maybe it's just suffered from the telephone game of being adapted in communication so many times. And like, how, what, like to what extent can we re reasonably expect people to be prepared to deliver an entire thesis statement on a specific point of view? Like as, as human beings, it just doesn't seem like many of us are really built that way. And so, and especially if the person you're engaging with is very emotional, um, I don't think it helps to be like really emotionally charged back because a lot of people I, I think who devolve into argumentation, I think both parties may not be wholly prepared um, with perfect memory databases and uh, you know, lovely communication skills to really like get at the truth of the matter. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And you know, kind of building on that, I mean, you know, you touched before on the issue of like being emotionally captivated to actually care about something. And yes. I, I've been thinking a lot about values and I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory. 
right? Kind of activating those moral archetypes mm -hmm. or those kind of moral taste buds, as he calls them. And one of the issues that I've encountered is some people may intellectually understand something. They have the kind of theoretical, you know, infrastructure to, to grok it, but they don't care. Because it doesn't comport mm -hmm. with their values, right? So one example would be people like, yeah, I, I'm aware that the environment is being destroyed, but I, I either I don't care or um, my values, right, economic advancement or business or whatever, right, takes precedence over this. And so in a sense, it's like you, you have the complexity of sense making. You just don't have the heart to go with actually creating meaningful change. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, that problem. Yeah, I mean, like, here's the thing is like, I, although we're dedicated to change in the context in which people think, we don't have the expectation that everyone's going to change. Some people do, won't care. Some people simply will not care. Um, and while we think it's important to signal to people that there is an emotional aspect of this issue that you need to emotionally understand in order to fully understand, um, there are some things that you don't necessarily need to engage with emotionally. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm having new thoughts as we're speaking now, but it's interesting to examine different issues and wonder if the same spectrum of emotion is available and reasonable and naturally occurring with all of those issues. So when it comes to the environment, there's definitely going to be people who are, you know, they romanticize the environment. They're emotionally saddened when they see it in, you know, a terrible shape. They're angry at um, the inconsideration of others. And perhaps it's reasonable to expect that the full spectrum of emotions is available for every point of view, but I'm not sure to what extent that's true um, and how, how frequent that, that occurs. So again, the society library is not necessarily interested in changing everybody or um, you know, changing anyone's hearts and minds per se, but when it comes to making collective decisions, we just kind of have to realize that human beings are built a little bit different. Um, while I would like to imagine that there is a circumstance and a condition and a context in which someone who's never before felt romantic feelings about the environment could. Um, I don't know whose responsibility it is or if it's even ethical to work hard to inspire that in someone. Certainly organizations do that. Um, and maybe it is uh, actually really important to ensuring that human beings have like the full breadth of experience in relation to something. But I don't know, it's something to think on. I don't have any definite answers other than we don't necessarily expect people to change. But when it comes to making mass collective decisions, it's important to take into account all of the thoughts and feelings. And it's also possible to see, is there a win-win here? So for example, perhaps the capitalists who don't care about the environment are not going to be um, you know, completely upset about uh, environmental issues being, um, propelled and, and, and regulations protecting the environment if the regulations like happen to impact all of their competitors equally. So it's just essentially changing the playing field for everyone as opposed to damaging their interests, for example. Right, right. Well, you know, one thing I'll share is, I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I wrote three uh, different articles on Medium. My three, I call them the post-steel man mans. Okay. Right? There's the titanium man, the polarity man, and the Vajra man. <laughs> I miss this. I want to hear about it. So the Titanium Man is one step beyond the Steel Man, where you actually rearticulate the argument or the core of the argument from a higher level of nuance and complexity than it was originally mm. articulated at. Right. Right. So it's like um, if if someone was listening to me talk about economics, I could give you my idea of economics, but it would be a pretty, it would be a much less complex, much less full articulation than like someone like Paul Krugman or real economists could actually articulate what economics is about, right? So it's like, in, you know, increasing the um, 
the complexity and even adding more context or perspectives to buttress or bolster that argument, right? So it's kind of like there's a kind of creative remixing element there Love with it. the Titania Man. Um, the second one is the polarity man, which, which is where you map out the larger polarity space of different competing values or ideas around any argument, right? So there's an underlying uh, polarity that one side of an argument may represent, right? So for example, um, with diversity or like you no know, critical race theory, maybe an underlying polarity could be like um, diversity versus unity or something, right? And so arguments tend to fall into one side of the polarity and de demonize the other side of the polarity. So the polarity man is fleshing out the larger polarity, the, the values tension that underpins any perspective. And then the Vajraman is the one I, I wanted to share with you because it's basically changing the aesthetic um, packaging or the symbolic structure of an argument, which changes the emotional impact or pattern of resonance it has with us. It changes how it, any perspective lands with us, right? And so um, one example would be, I don't know if you saw, I think it was like an art, uh, a video from Vox on like QAnon's Instagram success. Mm, no, I and basically what QAnon did was they, they, they changed the aesthetic presentation of Q, QAnon ideas to be this very kind of vanilla, um, like cozy middle-class soccer mom vibe. Okay. Which allowed it to scale in a way where this hardcore patriotic make America great again, hyper-nationalist aesthetic would not have allowed it to. So by changing, you know, it's kind of like marketing, it's a marketing technique, yep. basically. And so I was thinking, how can we use that for good, right, where we can present ideas. And you know, like, if the um, titanium man is being able to think of things in higher and new and more complex ways, the Vajra man is being able to feel the same thing in different ways, right, we're activating different moral uh, sentiments. And so that's one thing I'm, I'm interested in, right, is someone could find the resonance, the emotional resonance with an idea but in a completely different way than that side in the culture war articulates it, right? The aesthetic, the symbol, the symbology, right. the emotional um, quality that goes with it is completely different. So that's kind of what, something I'm interested in tinkering with. Yeah, and, and, and tinkering is a good word for it. So I would say, first of all, Society Library is interested in doing all of those things, all of those three things. But what's interesting, and, and this is like the, the topic that we're kind of approaching, especially with your last question, is that the Society Library has made a commitment to ensuring that there is a degree of emotional comprehension and connection with the claim. However, there's a line, right? Like you said, how could we use this for good? Well, that means someone needs to make a judgment about what good is. Um, so when, when, does that, when is that call made? After the Society Library has exhaustively mapped all arguments and claims we could possibly find, maybe there's a way in which we can make more informed judgment about where it's appropriate to emphasize emotion. Because here's the thing, there's a difference between romanticizing the environment and someone watching the George Floyd video and what happened to him. Because one is like, uh, abstract and one is uh, like an observation, like a direct observation. So if someone's watching the George Floyd, um, you know, if someone has attitudes or opinions about the George Floyd protests and they haven't seen that video, there's probably something missing in their emotional connection. Um, if they don't have a specific background or they don't come from a specific community or have specific life experiences, there's even more that they're missing and that's really difficult to fill in. So it is, it does to me seem like a priority to ensure that they're engaging with media that can inspire as much comprehension of that background and point of view as possible. However, it's a little bit different, I would say, um, and it's hard to put my finger on what's precisely is different, but it's a little bit different than just romanticizing the environment. 
because a lot of people may have, uh, you know, grown up in the United States and we've all kind of been socialized with these romantic tropes and ideals and archetypes and that sort of thing. So like very deeply in our psychology, a lot of us may be oriented towards wanting to romanticize something or, you know, so essentially if we take a bunch of subjects that in which it's completely subjective, whether it's romantic or not, and romanticize it, it maybe can be seen as a form of like, you know, marketing or manipulation or uh, psychological um, exploitation. And so there's a line there of like, well, why are we trying to make someone feel emotional about this? To what end? Who decides if that end is good or, or not? Because um, the thing about us making sense of things is that it happens automatically. Um, where our brains are constantly making sense of things, even if our brains decide this is too complex and throwing my hands up. And so it's really important, in my opinion, that we're very rigorous about how we come to judgments like using something for good or not, because it could be that we're romanticizing something that should not be romanticized, um, that can just be very successfully so. Um, yeah, so it is it is something to tinker with. I feel like there's a line there ethically, and I'm not sure how you figure out where the line is or who should make that call. It's a great question. I mean, my what comes to my mind right now is what good for me would mean, would it maximize its understanding or opens the door to people understanding something they were previously allergic to or didn't understand? Well, I love that. <laughs> I love that. That completely falls within our mission statement. And um, uh, just, just quickly, for those who don't know, the Society Library is a library um, which means like really our mission is to enable public enlightenment. And in the mid 20th century, uh, the American Library Association came out with these library bill of rights. And essentially it's all of these um, practices around optimizing for comprehension. So thank you for clarifying that because I, I think that's wonderful. Great. So other than going to the society library and spending hours and hours of your time perusing all of the research that you've done, what's some other practical advice you can give to people to, to best inform their political sensitivity when there's so much disinformation, there's so much spin and sensationalism, and there's obviously the selection bias problem that we talked about, and the social media feedback loop insulation problem, right, that documentary the social dilemma mapped out. Um, I mean, do you have a systematic way of like, like what news sources do you go to, what YouTube channels, do you, you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, yeah, I mean, so um, this is where training comes in. Um, and we have a whole training curriculum for our practitioners. And we also have like a certain culture within the society library. So if you go to our website, and you go to our virtues and values page, our virtues and values are all of these ways in which we identify how we relate to the idea of truth. So things like the truth is the truth, no matter who says it. And like, it's really important to be intellectually inclusive and look under every single like stone for where the truth may be. So that kind of helps orient ourselves culturally. We kind of assume that um, it's, it's, while you need to be discerning about sources, it's really about the content and not so much the source. What is actually being said? What else is out there to support what is being said? Um, so there's culture and then there's also the training. Um, I mentioned the 22 methods to overcome our own biases. Now, what an individual can do in their own life is one, something that I always love to assume is that when someone is, uh, when someone believes something, they're believing it for a reason. It may not be high quality content. It may not be epistemologically grounded content. It may not be evidence-based content, but they believe it for a reason. And that's something to be respected. So if you actually want to connect with someone, and for those of you who have an interest in changing people's minds, um, you need to really respect that there is a whole life behind what that person is saying. 
And you probably should focus on understanding what that life actually is and what that life means, because it may be that what they're saying is completely irrelevant and is actually communicating something else under some kind of, you know, abstraction or deception or distraction. So like, for example, if someone has, you know, been through incredibly like a horrible hardship in their life or have suffered a tremendous loss that may have manifested in a specific attitude towards something. And so if you want to connect with a human being and depolarize, you may just want to connect with the human being and not take them to task on the thing that they're saying. Of course, this all depends on your goals, but that's something that I found is no matter what someone's saying, it's for a reason. And that reason may be completely irrelevant. It may have to do with that person's personal life. Um, however, in some instances, that reason actually may be backed in some sort of grain of truth. So this is where the titanium man and steel man comes into play. So before you try to take someone to task and argue with them and try to prove that they're wrong, uh, go try and find out all the ways in which they could be right. Go to an archive and see if you can find a letter from the founder of this organization decades ago. Um, go and look for evidence. Um, and you may not find yourself traveling down the same rabbit hole as the person that you're speaking to came from. You may find a better one. And then if you do that, make sure you give them that information. Um, a nice little trick, in my opinion, is whenever you are about to make a judgment, you should instead ask a question. So if someone says something to you, they're arguing with you, and you immediately want to react with a judgment of like, they're wrong, that's stupid, um, you should probably just ask a question because there may be something that they just didn't have presence of mind to articulate that they could articulate that you would miss out on if you immediately disregard or insult them. Um, as for news sources, really, it has to do with the, the content. Um, because we, we, we have so much practice logically deconstructing language and natural language snippets itself. Um, we can pick up on a lot of, uh, reasoning errors and bias language. So I would actually just pick up a practice of doing that. The society library has educational internships. We're looking to take a lot of our training and turning it into MOOCs. So hopefully in the future, people will just be able to go through our self-guided MOOCs and learn how to deconstruct language into its like base logical forms and detect all the different ways in which bias in language can shape perception. Um, so that's forthcoming and hopefully can be useful. And then here's the big thing. Um, the biggest thing of all, which I don't necessarily know how to inspire except for years of practice. And I, I hope some of our students actually achieve this, which is, I think it's really important that we learn to divorce identity from opinions. Um, because I, I really feel as though like we need to start conceptualizing opinions as objects that we can pick up and take a look at, we can use as a tool, but we can also put it down on the table and take a step back and take a look at it, grab a few other opinions, say, okay, what looks good here? What, what makes sense here? Um, I don't have a, a concrete way to facilitate that. However, it seems very close to different meditative practices where you just kind of watch your thoughts go by. Just trying to divorce idea from identity, I think um, can be really helpful in navigating the world and using information as tools to make sense of it, as opposed to being used by opinions and just helping to meme and propagate out ideas. Sure. Well, I can, I can jump in. I love this. I love this topic so much. <laughs> um, I teach dialogue workshops to the public through a mediation center, a government mediation center. And it's, I teach a nine hour um, workshops, three hours a week for three weeks. And the, the technique that we sent really center the entire workshop around is this mind map technique that my colleague came up with, where you base everyone in the, in the workshop creates a mind map with different bubble ca categories that capture different elements of 
of that um, different components or elements that go into your sense making and thinking process behind your conclusion or belief on the issue. So let's say the center of the bubble would be, I don't know, gun, guns, right? Gun rights, gun control, whatever. And then the bubbles would be like experiences that inform a perspective, emotions, values and identities, information and data sources, uh, the social context that you're in. And what they do is they, they take time to write all, fill all those bubbles in, and then they share the mind map with each other before they dump, jump into talking about the issue. So you get the most holistic picture of the human being and everything that went into your belief instead of just fixating on the content of the belief. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's great. It, it works like magic too. And then part of the homework assignment we give people is um, you then go at, so what we next do is we then create, so I break it down into two sections. There's how to speak from the mind map and how to ask questions to get to the other person's mind map. So they craft open-ended questions to get at each bubble. And then the homework, is, they, we practice it in class and the homework assignment is they, they go and talk to someone they disagree with and try to fill in the mind map for the other person. Right. Wow. And then they come back and share that. And then the, the how to share yourself is how to create statements that share your own mind map, your own data sources, your own emotions, your own experiences, the social context that shape your thinking. And to share that in the least inflammatory, least polarizing way, usually using I statements, right? Like according to the data that I've seen, this is a conclusion I've come to. Instead of mm -hmm. I have the facts, I'm right, you're wrong, right? right I learn to think, right? Um, and that really has an incredible soothing influence on the conversation. So. I have no doubt about that. That seems like an incredible way of framing it um, and like positioning like where opinion lies as it relates to the individual. I love it. That sounds incredible. And you know, it's, it, these are very subtle things, right? To really separate identity from opinion also implies directly a transformation of your identity structure. If your identity is conflated with your opinion, to disentangle those means that both of them have to transform to some degree. Mm -hmm. And my, my idea is to create these really, um, complex kind of like worksheets and diagrams that already depict that process happening. So in the act of filling out the diagram, you just divorced uh, identity from opinion or whatever, right? And then you share it. You, so the sharing, the interpersonal part further cements or solidifies the new kind of self insights that you've come to. Um, Anyway, Ryan, that's in incredible. I'm so glad that practitioners like you exist in the world. Oh, that's thank fantastic. you. Likewise. Thank you so much. So we're running out of time here, but I want to get to one last big, probably the most sure. important question of all, which oh. some people asked you on other podcasts, but here we go. How do we rebuild trust as a society so that people would actually trust the work that you or myself are doing? Yeah, well, I can only speak for the work of the Society Library and our strategies. Um, trust. Uh, is a huge topic. Um, there's so many different dimensions, so many different strategies, whether you're dealing with an, you know, an individual at an individual level or an institutional level. So I'll talk about us as an institution. Um, one, we chose to be a library for a specific reason. Libraries are institutions that have stewarded human knowledge for thousands of years, um, may have even predated the idea of democracy itself. And so it's particularly like some people would argue it's political in a way because they deal with organizing information. And of course, there's history associated with that. But in its ideal sense, libraries are like not political. Um, we're also a nonprofit organization, which means no one technically owns us. And if we fail to um, act in accordance with our mission, we can be dissolved. Um, Another thing is that we're absolutely focused and dedicated on transparency. Transparency requires resources. So we're as transparent as we can be given the resources that we have. We actually have a 
Platinum Star Transparency Rating by GuideStar, which rates the transparency of organizations. And so I think we're in the top 2% of nonprofits in terms of like how transparent we are in terms of our operations. And we only want that to increase. Um, as we create a more integrated pipeline, we want to have a ledger of all the actions that are taken in the analysis process. We want that to be able to be publicly scrutable. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that we want to have a lot of redundant processes. So essentially, our system will allocate tasks that are being performed redundantly by analysts so that we can identify where bias in our own interpretation is occurring. So we have very long-term plans for these sorts of things. Um, in terms of like transparency of the organization. And then one, one of the reasons why we don't have our collections published and publicly accessible right now is because we're so obsessed with um, making sure that we've comprehensively represented everyone in a fair way, because we know that we will lose trust if we miss a really important point or we misrepresent a really important point. So we want everyone to come to the library and feel like this is a library of my ideas these are, you know, titanium manned. So it's like, these are more nuanced and precise and informed than I could possibly like come up with on my own, given how much research and, and information is out there. And so it's through our work um, and, uh, and, and performing at like an incredibly rigorous level and ensuring that we are truly representing people that we hope to steward that trust. And we don't expect to have that right off the bat. Um, people probably won't trust us immediately. Some people will, we hope will be unbelievably surprised at how dedicated we are to ensuring that everyone is heard. Um, uh, but, you know, we imagine that we will simply just have to earn that over time. And that's why we have this idea of what we call a meaningful increment. So we'll only publish updates to the library when we've comprehensively like assessed what are all the updates from all these different points of view. Because if we only update as quickly as the most resource point of view can spit out content, it'll quickly bias the representation of ideas in a system. So there's all these like kind of tips and tricks, but mostly it's just, we hope to be here, be transparent, be communicative, try and make as few biased mistakes as possible and really stick with our mission. Otherwise we'll be dissolved. Fantastic. So the hours of that this conversation just blew by. I blinked. It's like, oh my God, it's already been an hour. Yeah. But Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. And, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys do and then come up with any any final thoughts or anything before uh, we wrap up here. I just, I just want to say, Ryan, thank you so much for what you do. Um, thank you for this conversation. Um, this is not, you know, the Society Library isn't going to solve all of these problems. Um, this is such a complex, multifaceted, issue when it comes to reintegrating society and building trust and facilitating communication. Um, and the work that you do is, is so important. And I hope that you're able to scale and extend what you're able to give to other practitioners so that we as a society could have more inclusive and unbiased and informed and empathetic communications. Because if we're able to do that as a group of people, like who knows what we'd be able to accomplish. It could be amazing. Beautiful. And I'll, I'll say too, to end here that, you know, my passion in this really is the face-to-face -face human interactions, mm -hmm. the grassroots, you know, boots on the ground, going into communities live and talking to people directly, hosting gatherings in the community to talk about difficult issues. Um, I'm not, I'm actually not much of a computer research kind of a guy. I'm really a people person. So if you need, if you guys want, you know, if that kind of skills that could be of use to what you're doing, then please let me know. I'd love to collaborate or find some kind of synergistic connection. So. Oh my gosh. Yes, of course. I'm delighted that you said so. Um, I'm going to follow up with you after this because what you do could be extremely helpful, actually. So yeah, thank you. Fantastic. I, I really look forward to that. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye.